Turn your Bible once again, if you will, to Matthew 27. As you know, this week marks another anniversary of the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the Gospel of Matthew portrays him as the Messianic King of Israel prophesied in the Old Testament. On a few occasions, the multitudes who followed Jesus tried to force him to be their king. When he entered Jerusalem on the Sunday of Passover week, they heralded him as their king. And at his trial before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, he confessed that he was the Messiah, the Son of God, which was equivalent to saying he was the promised king of Israel. Before Pilate, he was asked the question, Are you the king of the Jews? And to this he gave an affirmative reply. At the cross, the inscription above his head stated, This is the king of the Jews. But the mission of Christ's first advent was not to be crowned king. It was to suffer and die on the cross. We should always approach this most solemn and holy occasion with great reverence and care. The gospel writers do not give us graphic details of what happened to Jesus on that day. They tell us in great simplicity that he was scourged, he was beaten, mocked, crucified, leaving off, for the most part, the horrific details of physical suffering. Many of you may remember years ago a film called The Passion, produced by Mel Gibson. It was about the trials and the suffering, the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it showed the gory details that Jesus may have suffered physically and emotionally. But it could not display, as no dramatic production can, what Jesus spiritually suffered for our sins. Many people were shocked and awed by that film. Many churches urged members to see it. But to me, it reduced the suffering of Christ merely to the realm of the physical and not the spiritual truth that the Word of God conveys to us. So this morning, we're not going to dwell on all the horrors associated with the cross. Most of us probably know those details anyways. What we do want to focus on this morning is the attitude and actions of those present at the cross toward the suffering king. And these include the actions of God the Father behind the scenes, the attitudes of the king, the Lord Jesus, displayed while he suffered, and finally the attitudes of humanity toward the one who suffered for them. So let's ask God's blessing on his word this morning. Our Heavenly Father, once again, we are reminded today of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, who is willing to receive upon himself the punishment for all of our sin. And Lord, we pray again we would be sobered by these truths. We would be humbled by them. Lord, that you will help us to discard all of our self-righteousness as we once again remember the depth of Christ's suffering. And Lord, may we also be burdened for the suffering of others when we are confronted with it. Lord, especially 
of souls that need to be saved. So Lord, we pray your blessing upon your word this morning. We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, the first thing we want to look at this morning is the action of God to the suffering of the king. And the first thing we note here, as we read through this passage earlier this morning, is the absence of God's presence. Does it seem strange to you that the only reference to God in this whole passage were the words of Christ's woeful cry, uh, my God, my God. You know, it's kind of like, where are you? Why have you abandoned me? Where, what, what have you, uh, where have you gone? And the apparent absence of God should rivet our attention. God the Father is silent. He is not acting. He's allowing these things to occur to his son without any kind of intervention. And we think past in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the Lord's presence has been very clear especially on three occasions when God actually spoke out loud to the approval of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The first time was at his baptism. And there, as the uh, the dove of the Spirit came down upon the Lord, uh, Jesus, God the Father speaks from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The next occasion was at the transfiguration where uh, James and John and Peter were present. And the Lord spoke again, saying virtually the same thing. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. But he added the words, hear ye him. In other words, he wanted these men to listen to what Christ had to say, especially about his death and resurrection. And then just a few days prior to his arrest, the Lord Jesus prayed, Father, glorify thy name and in the next, uh, uh, in the context of his approaching agony. And the father answered him, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. But now we come to the scene of the cross. We find that Christ must suffer there alone for the sins of humanity. He has to be abandoned by the father as he faces the judgment for our sins. And we can't really even imagine the depth of agony that this caused the Lord Jesus Christ. However, as we read the passage, there are certainly two actions, at least, that reveal the presence of God during that time. One of them is in verse 45. Now, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness all over the land. So the first thing we see there is this strange darkness that veiled the suffering of the king. That was the activity of God. It can't be explained sufficiently in any other way. And during the brightest hours of the day from noon to three, the sun was totally darkened. God the Father enshrouded the land in darkness as a sign of his judgment upon the people who rejected his son and chose darkness rather than light. This echoes Christ's own words recorded in John chapter 3, where he said, and this is the condemnation that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone that does evil hates the light, neither comes to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But it also signified God's judgment upon sin 
that had to be borne by his son for the redemption of humanity. All the darkness and evil caused by our iniquity was laid on the Savior that day. The second action of the Father we see is no less amazing in verse 51. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and also there was an earthquake. So the rending of the veil and that earthquake were signs that God indeed was present behind the scenes. And that veil is the one that was in Herod's temple that was ripped in half from top to bottom, from heaven to earth, you might say. And this too was only possible by the hand of God. That great veil stood 30 feet wide, 60 feet tall, and was a handbreadth thick. That veil stood between the holy place of the temple and the holy of holies, symbolically standing for the separation between the sinfulness of men and the holiness of God. Of course, for centuries, the Lord had abandoned that temple. That once holy compartment was now pitch black from the absence of the Shekinah glory of God. But when the veil was torn in two, it signified the opening of the way to God through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. No more veil was needed. And all those who believe are now a kingdom of priests with direct access to God. God's judgment was upon sin was satisfied through the sacrifice of Jesus the King, making possible our forgiveness and unhindered fellowship with God. Although the Father had to abandon the Son in judgment, he still made his presence known. Now let's consider the second series of attitudes here by the Lord Jesus Christ himself in the midst of his suffering. And we note a number of things. First of all, Christ's courage as he faced incredible suffering. We back up to verse 26. We're told that the people would rather have Barabbas, a known robber, even a murderer, to be released to them than the Lord Jesus Christ, who never committed a crime in his life, not even one single sin. And when uh, Barabbas is released, we know that Pilate, allowed them to scourge Jesus and then deliver him to be crucified. And we're all aware that that was a very terrible punishment. The whip contained leather thongs embedded with bone and metal, and no mercy was given in the number of lashes. The skin would be shredded, the muscles lacerated, and in some cases, even the intestines exposed. And then in verses 29 to 30, we see that the, uh, the guards were responsible for pounding a crown of thorns down on his head. They took a reed, they put it in his right hand, they're mocking him because he claims to be a king. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked and said, Hail, King of the Jews. Now when we think of a thorn, perhaps we think of something like the thorn on a rose bush. 
It can be painful if you prick your finger on one, but these were thorns that were up to two inches long. And they really are a reminder of us of the curse placed upon Adam way back when he and his wife disobeyed God for the first time. And the judgment was that he would have to work by the sweat of his brow and the earth would bring forth thorns and thistles. And so we have a a, a visual here of why Christ had to die. And as this was beaten down upon his brow, it caused extreme pain and profuse bleeding. Then we see the journey to the cross. And again, as Christ uh, moves from uh, the place where the trial took uh, took place to outside the city gates, uh, his amazing strength and resolve, because he had to carry the cross piece, the patibulum, all that distance in his weakened condition. And finally, he could carry it no longer. So they conscripted a man by the name of Simon in verse 32, who carried his cross the rest of the way to Golgotha. And that brings us to the crucifixion itself, the cruelest form of capital punishment known to that day. It was reserved for the vilest of criminals, and its purpose was to execute the victim in the most excruciating way possible, yet extending their life as long as possible. And added to this, there was the shame of that kind of a death upon a citizen uh, uh, that was a Jew, compounded by the teaching of Scripture, which said, he that is hanged is accursed of God. And that was the view of most of the Jews there that day. So this was the purpose in the priest seeking the Roman death penalty, that Jesus might be shown uh, to be uh, an example of public revulsion, that the Jews would turn away from him as a false Messiah because he's hanging on a cross. And in all of this, Jesus displayed manly courage. No complaint, no crying out in pain, no reviling those who put him there. As the author of Hebrews says, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Not only did he exhibit courage, he also showed control in the face of cruel taunting. We read earlier, verses 29 to 31, how the soldiers mocked him, put that throne, uh, 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 crown on his head and beat it down. They spat in his face, verse 30 says, uh, says. And then verse 31, when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him and put his own clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. So he suffered uh, that kind of taunting and mockery on the part of the soldiers. Then we look at the religious leaders as well in verse 41. They mocked him. These are the people that you would have looked up to like you looked up to a pastor today. And they're mocking the Lord Jesus Christ as well. And we go down to verse 44. The two men who hung on either side of him who were robbers, who were convicted of a crime and paying for that crime, they too partook of this reviling in verse 44. 
So all these people are there giving him absolutely no, no comfort, uh, uh, taunting him in that situation. Anyone else would surely have retaliated, at least in word. But Jesus did not respond. He maintained his composure under constant control of his spirit. He even said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, as they spiked him to the cross. I don't think any of us could have come anywhere near showing the control and composure that the Lord Jesus Christ did. Well, one of the most important things we see here is in verse 46, and that's his cooperation with the will of God in this whole situation. Now, about the ninth hour, uh, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now note that this is the cry of a soul conscious of separation from God the Father. As Jesus cries out, he is feeling the full weight of every sin committed by every human being that ever had lived or ever would live on his shoulders. At the same time, he senses the abandonment of God the Father in eternal judgment for that sin. Exposition really fails us to understand the full realization of that moment where God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit had never experienced one moment of separation for all of eternity. But it had to be that way in order for our sin to be judged by God the Father. And Jesus the King was willing to experience the total wrath and separation of God that sin might be judged once and for all. He suffered in full cooperation with God's will to make an atonement for our sin. And then in verse 50, we have the last thought here, and that is Christ's conquest and giving up his spirit. Look there, if you will. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And we see here that the last words of our King and Savior upon the cross were not the muted whispers of a dying man. He cried out again with a loud voice, a voice strong and a voice triumphant, so that everyone could hear it. As he said those words, it is finished. Now those were the words of the marketplace that the people of the cross would have fully understood. The verb was to telestai, and it alluded to the completion of a transaction by the full payment of a debt. If you had been in debt to someone back in that day, and uh, finally 
brought to the person the last payment, he could submit a form of a bill to you and stamp on it to telestai. And out of your joy of being out of that debt, you might go down the marketplace holding that up in your hand and crying out, to telestai, to telestai, it's finally finished, it's finally over with. And that's what Jesus was saying in regard to the payment of our salvation. He was saying the ransom for sin had been taken care of. The work of redemption was finished. The salvation of humanity was sealed with his blood. It is then that Luke tells us in his gospel that Jesus prayed, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And he willingly gave up his life. And the phrase here, he yielded up his spirit, refers to the sending away of his own spirit. And it indicates that he was in control of what was happening right up until the moment he released his spirit. It was not the crucifixion. It was not the spear of the uh, soldier. It was not the normal expiration that would usually take days. But he yielded up his spirit. So he did not die passively and broken, but actively and triumphant. So that leads us then to the final set of attitudes represented by those who are present at the cross. The Lord Jesus was courageous and he was controlled and he was cooperating with the will of God. And in conquest, he offered up his spirit and paid the penalty of our sin. But now let's take a look at the attitudes of humanity who were present at the king's suffering. We really kind of have three groups of people here. First of all, the soldiers who represent the brutality of the common man. Who were these men? Well, they were pagan men. They were caught up in the polytheism of Rome if they believed in any gods at all. They were cruel. They were base. They were common. They were indifferent to the sufferings of others. To take another person's life meant little to them. And their attitude toward the king was one of brutality and mockery, as we've seen, displaying man's inhumanity to man. And really, that truth never passes away, no matter how advanced we think that our society becomes. We always have the gulag, the gas chambers, the infanticide, the genocide, even in modern times. Look at what's happening in the Ukraine today. It's man's inhumanity to man. And we think about what happened there at the, uh, at the cross, and it's repulsive to us. Could you whip a person to a bloody pulp? Could you beat a crown of thorns down upon, upon someone's head and then laugh about it? Could you spit in that person's face and mock them? Could you nail someone to a cross and then roll dice to see who would get his clothes? These men could. And really, the only reason we could not is by the grace of God displayed in Christ. Even their last action was not one of compassion, but total cruelty in verse 48. Uh, 
Immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. That wasn't uh, so it would relieve his pain. As a matter of fact, that mixture was so bitter that it wasn't really drinkable. Such men, because of the callousness of their hearts, could display nothing but indifference and disdain as they contributed to the king's suffering. But you know what? Do we not display the same kind of attitude every time we show less concern for others than we do ourselves? Oh, we may not uh, pull a trigger. We might not take out a whip. But oftentimes, we put ourselves far above the needs of others. Then we think about the religious rulers who were also present that day. The men who people looked up to for spiritual guidance, but were of course giving none. And the religious rulers represent the blindness of religious men or false religion, we might say. The self-righteous perpetrators of uh, this belief system were present at the cross to the very end. And we see how they treated the Lord Jesus Christ. It seems that there were many people who were there at the trial, and then they would have followed the procession uh, out of the city, uh, down the, uh, along the uh, pathway that led to Golgotha. And included in this group were some of the false witnesses that had gathered against him at the Jewish trial. And it says here in verse 39, And those who passed by blasphemed him. They spoke evil of him, wagging their heads, which was a, um, um, a way of showing their derision and their disdain, and saying, You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. So they, they taunt him with their false testimony and throw his own claims back in his face. And this is followed by the chief priests in verse 41, also mocking with the scribes and elders. What do they say? They say, oh, he saved others. Himself, he cannot save. If he's the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross, and we'll believe him. You know, what they said was actually true. But they really did not comprehend what they were saying, did they? We know that Jesus could have come down from that cross and saved himself. He had told his disciples he had the power to call down 12 legions of angels and destroy the whole world. But that would not have accomplished the purposes of God. If Jesus had saved himself, there would be no saving of anybody else, past, present, or future. Indeed, in order to save others, he would not and he could not save himself. But of course, they could not comprehend that truth. And then they mock his relationship with God the Father, verse 43. He trusted in God. Let him, God, deliver him now if he will save him, if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. 
So they're thinking, if this is really so, if God's really your father, why does he save you? Why does he leave you here hanging on this cross? And so they make a mockery of that relationship as well. In their eyes, his trust in God was proven to be unfounded and false. Yet we know that Jesus placed explicit trust in the will of his Father, even when it required his death to provide our salvation. Well, there's another group at the cross, a little bit different group than these. One bright spot, we might say, in this display of cruel and sinful humanity. If you look at verse 55, we're told, And many women who followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, were there looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. So here we have the women near the cross, the beauty of the faithful, we might say. They had faithfully ministered to Christ during his earthly ministry. And here we see their beauty, uh, their loyalty, as they do not go home. They they do not uh, separate themselves from him. And it's interesting that we see no disciples with them, just the women. Now we do know that at some point John was present at the cross because Jesus laid on him the responsibility of care for his mother Mary. But there's no mention of any others at the cross. The women are there. At this point, they're far off. Perhaps through apprehension or respect or not wanting to see Christ suffer, uh, suffer up close. But they're there and they're watching. And I'm sure they don't understand what's going on. But they're waiting for him to die. They're waiting to take him down from the cross. They're waiting to prepare him for burial with the arms of love and the hearts of adoration. So there were at least a few that day who were so loyal and faithful to the king. This leads us to our final observation this morning. And that is this. The division caused by the suffering king. People were divided that day by their perceptions of who he was and his suffering on the cross. Jesus prophesied earlier that his death would cause division, even within families, between those who believed and those who did not. So let's think about that for a moment this morning. First of all, the soldiers were divided. Some for sure remain in their callous ways. We saw that before Jesus came to the cross. But according to verse 54, something strange happened, something amazing. So when the centurion and those with him, so the centurion is the the captain, if you will, who's in charge of the proceeding there uh, on the cross, and he's got a few men with him, probably uh, four. And when this centurion, those who were with him, those who were guarding Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, 
they feared greatly. So they knew something was going on that was really kind of uh, out of this world. And then they say, truly, this was the Son of God. Now, I don't know for sure if that was a profession of faith and they trusted in him as Savior or not, but their statement truly was uh, uh, the right thing and the right perception of the Lord Jesus Christ. So there were some soldiers who at least uh, got the idea that something uh, supernatural was going on here. And maybe everything that's being mocked about this person is actually true. Then we have the priests also were divided because of that day. Most of them remained in their unbelief. There's going to be conflict between them and the apostles in the future. They would try to stamp out this group of Christians but I imagine that day, if you had been a priest who was ministering in the temple and you saw that veil being split in half, no way it could have been done, humanly speaking, that you would have been awed and amazed and wonder what in the world was going on. And we're told in Acts chapter 6, the word of God increased and the number of disciples multiplied in Jerusalem. And a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. So some of the priests came to know Christ as their Savior. So there was a division. And finally, as we think about those two thieves on the cross, was there not a division there as well? One of them repented of his sins and asked the Lord to remember him. And Jesus said, Today you'll be with me in paradise. The other one kept on mocking and rejecting. So all kinds of attitudes were represented at the cross of Christ. What then can we glean from them this morning? Well, a number of things. <clears throat> First of all, we're reminded that God the Father could not be near the Son when he judged our sin in him. And that really shows us how terrible and deserving of punishment our sins are. And it's easy for us to escape that, to, to draw away from that. But the sacrifice of Christ satisfied God's wrath against our sin once and for all that we might experience forgiveness, eternal life, and a personal relationship with him. Then we also are reminded that we have a shepherd king who was willing to suffer the punishment of hell in our place. But his work on the cross avails us nothing if we don't believe it. Christ's death is a sufficient payment for the penalty of our sin, only when we trust him completely to be our Savior. And so we see the necessity of submitting ourselves to him as our Savior and confessing him as our King. There's a reminder here also of what Christ removes in us through his salvation. We saw that 
The people at the cross were callous toward his pain and toward his suffering. And you know, that is often common to all of humanity. There's a selfishness that causes an indifference in us toward others and their needs. And we seem to easily put ourselves above others and look down on others. So we need to check our attitude toward other people. Do you have a wrong attitude toward someone? Have you been looking down on or mistreating someone? Are we putting ourselves above others? Christ gives us the ability to reverse that. And then we also see here the blindness toward truth that supports that self-righteousness. When we have the right perception of Jesus, who he is, why he came, we then have the right perception of ourself, that we are sinful, that we are deeply flawed, and that we're in need of a Savior. And only he can save us from ourselves and mold us into his righteous image. And then finally, Christ still causes division today. Some of you are well aware of this because there are people in your family who are still lost. And they can't act right. And they can't experience life the way that God intended because they don't know him. And this causes us pain, causes us sorrow and difficulty. But we need to be faithful in our witness to them and to others. And we need to be faithful that we show the attitudes of Christ to those who are around us. We need his courage. We need his composure. We need his attitude of um, conquest through the power of the Holy Spirit. And those things will help us to be a faithful witness to him. May the Holy Spirit then work these truths in our lives today and every day. Heavenly Father, we're thankful once again for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who suffered all these things to save us from our sin. Lord, we know that we are, we are guilty, lowly sinners who could do nothing to save ourselves. Forgive us, Lord, of our pride that we have to contend with almost on a daily basis. And help us to be uh, thankful for what Christ has done. Help us to be humbled for what he's done. Help us to be conscious of our sin, that we might confess it each day and walk closely with you. Lord, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, our suffering King, who made our life possible. And we pray, Lord, you help us to walk with him each and every day. We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen.